Welcome to Newsworthy with Norrisworthy. Get ready for some awesome. All right, friends. Welcome back to the show. It is the March wrap-up podcast. Get ready for some awesome. Yes. Okay, so you know that is. That's Johnny Storm. Okay, before we jump into it, let's tell you about the sponsor for this month. It's the Pepperdine Bible Lectures. Johnny, you going to that this year? I am, as always. Are you doing any classes? Uh, yeah, I am. What? Are you doing anything besides podcasts? No, just doing live podcasts every night. That's what Mike wants. You've been really pigeonholed. Uh, well, I don't... I mean, I keynoted last year. I don't remember what you did last year, but um, <laughs> I... I'm very excited. Do you have that printed on a business card now? I've okay. Pep, okay. Like we're saying, Pepperdine Bible Lectures, May 2nd through 5th. You can find out if I'm pigeonholed or Jonathan actually has something worth saying. But there will be outstanding teachers, Pete Enns, Suzanne Stabile, many friends of the show, Josh Graves, Wade Hodges, Sarah Barton, Fate Haygood, Don McLaughlin. A lot of great people there. May 2nd through May 5th. Um, it is an outstanding event. Beaches, mountains, and... Some really good speakers, plus Jonathan. So, hope you join us there for the Pepperdine Bible Lectures. Oh, look at you. What? You are so good at your pitches now. Well, you know, it's easy to pitch that because it's a product like I believe in. a carny in. barker. <laughs> I'm barking. And, and come get this snake oil, ladies and gentlemen. Did, did you just call the Pepperdine Bible Lectures snake oil? No, it yes, was more you did. your ability to pitch things huh. than it was. The pe- the Pepperdine Bible Lectures are amazing. It's <laughs> lots of fun. Yeah, this is Jonathan's last year we of going. We should have a pitch-off. We should totally have a pitch-off. What would your pitch be? <laughs> uh, okay, this is not scripted or anything. You're not like getting any money for this. It's just being goofy, but it would be. It's a great time of uh, fun and um, getting to listen to different that's a you're, you're doing great it's shut a, up, it's a shut up. <laughs> i didn't know i was gonna be doing this it was your it was, idea to do this <laughs> i didn't think about it before uh, like many of your sermons uh, that's how this is yeah, happening that's the this one thing about my sermons last minute and yeah thrown together yeah. but it's a great it's a great week lots of fun <laughs> get to see a lot of uh, familiar faces hear new ideas and you get to be in malibu yeah like a, I always think about Pepperdine Bible lectures, what the people in Malibu must think. Because all of a sudden they go from everybody being, you know, like Hollywood or, you know, famous for something to a bunch of people who sound like Oklahomans. What <laughs> <you know? laughs> did Tulsa show up here? <laughs> yeah, that is an interesting dynamic. Yeah, surprisingly, I don't see a ton of local Malibuians. Showing up. I'm not sure if that's actually what you call a local from Malibu. Oh, I think you nailed Malibuians. it. Malibuians. Yeah. No, I don't, I don't think so. Um, but they should come because it's a good event. It is a good event. Speaking of good events, although I'm not sure <laughs> that's a good transition to what I want to talk about, I want to talk about something else now. Uh-oh. The uh, So the other day on your mailbag, uh, you read one of the reviews and it made me start thinking, I wonder what kind of reviews you get on here. So I went <laughs> on your iTunes, mm-hmm. and I just wanted to read some of the more, I think, insightful reviews. <laughs> Good. Thank you. I'm looking for this. There's one person who wrote a one star. <laughs> and if you're listening, I don't, I don't know who you are. Yeah. If they gave a one star, they're probably not listening anymore. When I, when I sort it by <clears throat> most critical uh Okay, so can you write your own reviews? One wrote, Luke is my hero. I, and that makes me think I didn't, that was self-published. 
<laughs> Put a ring on it? Put a ring on it, yeah. There, there's some Subscribe newsworthy to, slash Beyonce. Are you people? Is this like a, a thing where you can buy followers? No. I think we have some good friends of the show who like to support it. And that's a great way to support the podcast is the reviews. It helps a lot with iTunes and the way that they promote it. So if you haven't done it, please leave a nice review. Thank you for all you who have left a good five-star review. Uh, I enjoy, I listen to this podcast for the guest. Implied, not the host. <laughs> I'd been searching for interviews of Rob Bell and stumbled upon this podcast. It's good overall, but I wish the interviewing style was more easygoing and open to where the guests want to take the conversation. Also, all the corny jokes bug me. Sorry. I, you're, you're, you are not alone, Amy219. You are not alone. It sounds like if she doesn't like jokes, she might end up being alone. Because I think <laughs> jokes are a great way to bring people together. If you didn't like the last thing that Luke just said, go to the iTunes <laughs> podcast and review. <laughs> oh, gosh. Thank you. So uh, one of them, the one that you read, I'm, I'm looking for that because it was something about how my you, the, the person wanted their kid to have my faith and your hair. Yeah, I mean... I- is that right? Is that what? Yeah, they said? I, I I remember reading something like that. Um, if my if my son, thanks for making a difference in my son's life, Jonathan, directly to me. If he ends up with your faith and Luke's hair, I'll consider it a win. Um, I <laughs> that comment was so spot on. Thank you, Peter. That comment was so spot on because both of us think, okay, that's a good thing. <laughs> like. Luke, you have no problem with that comment, right? You know, I think it's definitely something that I would love to help the younger generation with. and With, with hair care? Well, I mean, I want to just give back, and I want to help others, and if that's the... Like locks of love? Yes. Well, no, not necessarily like that. More... Let's, let's do this. If we can get how many reviews on here, you will do locks of love. Uh, about a thousand. If we get a thousand... No, a thousand? no. If we can... Let's say if we can get 200 reviews. You got 115 right now. If we can get 200 reviews before the end of what? April? Uh, before May 30th. We'll do that. March 30th. May- let's do March 30th. <laughs> May 30th. Verbal contract. No, heard. no. Well, uh, let's... You'll do Box of Love. Let's go ahead and just get 200 reviews. I think that'd be great. And then we'll just pray about the hair. And if that's uh, something that Richard Rohr emails me to do, then we'll consider it. Is it? Okay. Can you send me Richard Rohr's email address, <laughs> no. please? No, he doesn't want to talk to you. He doesn't. How often do you get that? Can you send me the contact information for... Yeah, that is kind of weird, because I get that pretty frequently these days. And it's there's like a, like a, like a, a code. Like, you don't just give out certain people's contact information because they don't have it. Like, How did you get their information? Well... <laughs> From somebody breaking the code, right? No, typically... <laughs> Yes, that's totally how you did. No, like a lot of times I'll get... So, for example, Walter Brueggemann, uh, we were going to do the podcast uh, like three or four weeks ago, and then he got sick, and so he emailed... Or actually, his wife emailed me and said, hey, Walter's sick, we're going to have to reschedule this. And so he he directly emailed me after that, after his uh, his publicist was doing the first couple rounds of it. So, uh, and then Walt and I just email him buddies now. That's how it works. Mm-hmm. So... How'd you feel about the month? It was good. I mean, 
I can't believe Walter Brueggemann was the, the most recent one posted. Uh, I can't believe that we went that long until we got uh, Walter Brueggemann on the podcast. I, yeah. If I would have known how outstanding of an interview he was, I would have made that happen a long time ago. I don't know why I didn't. I, I never have any fear of talking. I didn't think he wouldn't be a good interview, but I didn't realize how ex- exceptional of an interview he was. Did I ever tell you my Walter Brueggemann story? No. Of when I, I met him when I was like 24, 25, and I was just reading a ton of his stuff. And um, <laughs> I was really nervous when I met him. Gosh, I can't believe I'm telling you this. <laughs> and I, when I met him, I go, you've given me the capacity to dream again. <laughs> that was what I led with. <laughs> It was so awkward. It was, I couldn't believe I said it. Yeah. Do you think, what, what do you think is more awkward? You've given me the ability to dream again, or our unnamed friend who was out on a surfboard with Rob Bell in the middle of uh, Laguna Beach and said to Rob, yeah, Rob, there's nowhere I'd rather be than right here with you. <laughs> oh, no, he didn't say with you. Nowhere. That's, that is... That is equally awkward. Yeah, I think they're both pretty awkward. So, uh, you know, when you started to tell that story, there was zero doubt in my mind that it wouldn't end with you making a fool of yourself. I don't know why, okay. but thanks. I, no, I have a long track record of that. I'm comfortable with yeah, that. Yeah, but that, what did he do kind when you told him that you had dreams about him? Oh, okay. <laughs> That's the worst possible way to frame what I said. Um, yeah, it got awkward. <laughs> the conversation didn't really go anywhere from there. Mm-hmm. Well, um, that, that doesn't surprise me at all. L- okay, let's start then uh, without actually Walter Brueggemann. Um, okay. Okay, so... Tell me more about that book, because I, I'm i a fan of Walter Brueggemann's, but I hadn't even heard of that book. Okay, well, his son is a sociologist, and his son, I guess, gave him the uh, the book called The Righteous Mind by University of Virginia psycholo- uh, psychologist Jonathan Haidt, and... You know, Beck has probably blogged about him. Yeah, I know, I know that yeah. book. Um, and uh, so basically what happened, honestly, I, I saw the book came out, got a copy of it, got the interview, and then I texted Richard and said, hey, get, I'm, I'm doing the, the podcast with him. And he goes, this is what you should ask him. And I think I said on the podcast, ask him the Bible verse that supports or the biblical concept that supports each of the six tenets of hate's theory, which is basically what happens. And so, you know, there's six basic tenets of um, that, that hate puts out like loyalty versus betrayal, sanctity versus uh, degradation, authority versus um, subversion. And so these are like care versus harm, these six tenets. Um, and so basically his son does the first half of the chapter doing the sociology behind it. And then the second half is Brueggemann doing his Old Testament theology stuff. And it's really, it's really good. Now the question is when Brueggemann does all this stuff about... Um, uh, he, he he makes the comparison of the Old Testament text about uh, unjust scales, how the economic yeah. system is broken, and he compares that to the American economic system and the uh, stuff. And this is his son's sociology uh, half, where his son's talking about like half of the richest Americans have inherited significant amounts of money, and uh, on average, the rich get rich, richer faster than those uh, who don't start rich. And so a, a lot of, and he compares that to prophetic Old Testament stuff. And yeah. you go, well, I see the connection. I, I don't doubt that that's a fair application, but I don't know how you could preach that. Like maybe at a church like Highland where it's not extremely wealthy, but uh, 
that would be a hard one, I think, for a lot of people to hear in a sermon form because that's uh, that, that steps on all of our toes, I think. Yeah, and and you know you're probably have enough Anabaptist impulse to you know I don't I think the the challenge is I think the church Christians are called to the people of God are called to be like that. Can you translate that immediately into you know America national yeah. policy? What it seems like we we know now that when they're right when people on the right do that that that's like that doesn't lead to good places. Mm-hmm. Um, not that we don't need to be more just and things with the way we organize our economics, but who who is we, I guess, is the question. Yeah, so his stuff about the 52 and 1, like 52 weeks a year you go to church, mm-hmm. uh, and then I made that great joke that Walter actually laughed at, which is pretty amazing. Uh, and then he said, but one week a year, like the church should rally together for a social cause, and like I forget exactly what the application that was, uh, like march to city hall. Go to the city hall. Yeah, and, so yeah. you hear that and you're going, Anabaptists, we know this is wrong from the right. It's also wrong from the left. We know it's wrong from the left. Don't go to the right. Is that is that where you're going with that when you hear him say? Yeah, I was just thinking, well, I mean, like, I, I do think that's one of the ways that Christians Christians get involved in politics and care. But And one of the things I, I heard in the in the conversation is that I agree. Our we we've, we've forgotten our faith is political. Mm-hmm. In the words of Eugene Peterson, but it's political in a way that no one saw coming. Um, and part of the challenge that I think he's he y'all were talking about is that when we when we forgot that what happened is now today our politics are our faith. For so many people um, they put the weight of what used to be in their Christian identity or, or whatever their their own faith background is on politics, and it's crushing. Yeah. I mean, it's yeah, it, it's it's it speaks to just how anemic our faith is. When whenever we hear certain issues about loving our neighbor or taking care of refugees or uh, insert whatever issue, and go, well, that's just a political issue, and you and the first lens that you see it through is politics instead of Christianity, which speaks to what's first, like what's most paramount in your heart. If the first lens you always go to is politics. And that's, I mean, that's nationalism. That's the, the heart of, uh, I think, one of the, the big idols of America. So, yeah, I agree. Yeah. yeah. It was a good interview. I, I did love hearing him, and hopefully I could meet him again one day and not creep him out totally. Yeah, I would, I would think that would be a good goal for you to have. Uh, trying try yeah, not to the bucket list. Yeah. What did you think about like the integration of sociology and theology, or any basic of the social sciences and theology together? You obviously live uh, near Beck, who's, who's done a great job of bringing theology into his background of a psychologist. Obviously, he's got an undergrad Bible too. But like, how, how do you hear those those two things being integrated? What do you think the place of that is? Well, I mean, obviously, to someone with a hammer, everything looks like a nail, right? Mm-hmm. And so name name where I'm coming from. I'm a preacher. I believe a lot in the local church, and I I think theology is the queen of all sciences. Mm-hmm. Even when we uh, so what does Augustine talk about plundering the Egyptians' gold? Um, that you there's all truth is God's yep. truth, and and that kind of stuff. I think often preachers do do that sloppily, mm-hmm. and. Um, you know, there's an idea. You got a you got a verse and a TED talk, yeah. and it works. But you know, I, I don't know. I mean, I think 
I think you proceed with caution, but all truth is God's yep. truth. Yeah. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, I feel like I've always had a fascination interest with that. And so there's, uh, on quite a regular basis, I'll reference, um, you know, a study or an idea, a concept in a, in a sermon, um, hopefully more to articulate uh, a point, not to preach a, an idea. You know what I'm saying? Like, I, I want the, I want theology yeah. to be, I mean, that's my bread and butter. That's where you and I both come from. That's our world. Uh, and so other things that can, can accentuate and help and enlighten are great. Um, but, you know, if I'm ever preaching just a Malcolm Gladwell pop psych book, I, I feel like we're all going to be in trouble. You know? <laughs> Even more, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, sure. Whatever. So how'd the March mailbag, how do you think that went? Uh, I thought, you love. You I thought that you. guest was outstanding. So like I felt like I really had a good rapport uh, with the person on that that episode. No, I don't know. It was fun. I mean, I there there are things I I thought were important. What goes through your mind when you think you know what you know what the world needs? The world needs me to unfurl my wisdom mm-hmm. to their. They need a Dear Abby podcast yep. in which I'm going to answer all the different theological questions that people have and and just set set the matter yeah, to rest. I mean just like Isaiah I say Lord here I am send me and <laughs> I, I, so this was a calling from the Lord well I, I mean I wouldn't be that audacious to say it exactly in those words but yeah I think but you'll be kind well of I think we all can just infer that that's that's kind of what was we're oh, we're inferring mm-hmm. we've got a lot of inferring yeah, going on yeah, yeah. when and, and I was yeah. I was glad to to, you know, the funny one is talking about, uh, there's that question about, uh, in marriage, like when your, uh, spouse is a different place from you theologically. I felt like, okay, uh-huh. I, I think a preacher should have a voice in this conversation, but maybe we should also like get a therapist on this one. Um, like a marriage and family person, cause they might have a little bit more of the practical stuff to say. So yeah, that. So, you know, one of the interesting things that, well, it's interesting to us because we do this every every day, but um, I, I do feel like there's a couple of times in the Mailbag Podcast where I thought, oh, you're kind of getting to see what it looks like in a pastor's office every day, hmm. you know, because people yeah. come by and they're asking questions like very much like that, you know, like, well, he doesn't believe Jonah um, literally happened anymore, and um, how how do we work through this? And, and, and- you're you're so often just trying to figure out how to disarm a bomb, which wire to yeah. cut to disarm a bomb. And, it, and, it's, an, and, and it's a natural life cycle for people to have different growth spurts in their spiritual progression that are not always symmetrical with their significant other. And so, yeah, of yeah. course there's going to be different, uh, different places where people are going to find themselves. But also, the difficult thing about being a pastor is also the difficult thing about answering a question like this is my natural tendency would be, okay, let me ask you about five more follow-up questions before I really give you an answer. Because right, yeah. there's always a question under the question and there's always more going on. I, I don't know if you've experienced this, but typically whenever you get like the first confession from someone, hey, this is going on, I'm really struggling with this. That's like the uh, like the, the cleaned up version. Like that's like the TBS, like that's not... Right. That's not the HBO version of what's going on. Like that's like the NBC, like seven o'clock version. That's not like the eleven thirty HBO version. Like you've got to wait it out until you hear the whole story. (laughs) Funny metaphor. (laughs) I don't know what happens on HBO at eleven. I was saying there's reruns of the Superman movie, 
and in the new one, I think there's some, oh. some bad words. That's what I was referencing. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks for translating that for me. So, yeah, I mean, I, I everybody comes in. I mean, because confession is always hard, and we don't live in a world that gets confession. So you definitely want to – and I do this. I mean, it's not like the dirty sinners that – you know, this is this. We're human too, and I definitely, when I've had to confess stuff to people, to my friends that are hold me accountable and things, I've tried to be like, now, here's the thing, you know, and frame it just right. And so I, I get yeah. that. I had yeah. one therapist that I went to that uh, I didn't really like a whole lot because they wouldn't ask follow up questions, and I want to be like, hey, we all know how this game works. Like, I'm going to say some. I need you to dig out the rest that I really don't want to bring up. But of course, uh-huh. it's their fault, not mine. And so that's why I switched. So, I'm I'm going to counseling right now myself, and the the counselor, you know, it's against the law to tell people that you're counseling another person. And you know, I live in a small West Texas city, and uh, I have a, a buddy who is a, is a big guy, former convict, and he borrows my truck from time to time, and he sees my truck at the counseling place and all of a sudden there's a bang on this door that's a house that nobody knows what it is in the middle of Abilene. And he, my, my counselor's like, can I answer this? And I say, yeah. And my buddy yells, is Jonathan there? (laughs) And, uh, I don't, I can't tell you that. And he starts yelling, Jonathan, Jonathan yelling behind him. (laughs) What'd you do? Uh, well, he, he had to lie and say I wasn't there. And then as soon as he came back, I was like, can I go tell him I'm here? Cause I, but he was worried about me. Aww. I mean, it, it was great. Like, I never feel safer. That's that's good. Um, Most of us who are worried about you were just happy you're there. And he, on the other <laughs> hand, was yeah. worried about you. Yeah, that's interesting. Okay, so the one about the, uh, the spouses, two different places on their spiritual journey. Uh, what would you say if uh, they come into... Uh, I think you said that. I I think you said what I what most pastors would have said, me included. Um, so, you, I'm sure you have malpractice in other parts <laughs> of your your pastoral advice, but it okay, wasn't good. there. That's good to hear. Um, let's talk about. You want to talk about Cope? It was. I do. I'm in. I'm in his I old know, office. It was so great to have like my favorite Highland preacher ever on the podcast. That was just so neat. Man, so neat. I I don't follow yeah. you that. So he says that he's like the crazy uncle of the uh, of the church. Uh, what do you think that makes you then? <laughs> uh, I don't. Uh, some weird nephew, mm. right? Yeah, that's that sounds about right. Weird. Some homeschooled doesn't quite fit in with the rest of the family. I think we're, um, we're trying to do more metaphorical stuff. That's literally what you are. Like, none of that is a, a metaphor. Um, but I guess that's, the, we'll go with it. We'll go with it. Yeah, what are you? I'm just a um, humble helper of the family. I'm just here to... You know, humble is not the way humble people describe themselves. I feel like that's really arrogant of you to say. And... Of course. Yes, of course. Um, okay, so Cope was on. Um, I like old Mike. He talked about the uh, the obsession with certainty as one of the things, the addiction to certainty that prevents us from moving forward and, and having like a 
spiritual formative, like a formative spiritual journey. The old sin of certainty there, like how are you in certainty yeah. these days? Yeah. Me? Uh, well, <laughs> I, I mean, I think we've talked about it so many times before, but... I'm just wondering if you've grown. Right, I'm just wondering if you've of, grown. You've changed it all, because <laughs> I know you have some... When he was talking about that, I had plenty of people come to mind. Okay. And Let's you probably did too, right? Names and email addresses. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the, you know, and, and part of the thing that I appreciated he did there was he doesn't try to destabilize them. He just tries to be there for when they get destabilized. Because that life tends to do that. Um, what did he say? Was it suffering the way he said that that happens, that you get destabilized? Yeah, that sounds about right. I mean, that, that seems to be the same story that gets told a lot, where for most of us it is some form of suffering. Yeah. Uh, anytime you, you don't get what you expect, you feel like uh, your life should be. I mean, that's, that's usually what, when it is. Well, you know, I, I think one, one of the challenges that we, we are going to have is there are people who have the, the gift of faith, and they're, they just tend to trust. Um, I don't know if that's the same, if that comes across the same way as certainty. But, and then I know people who are trying to look for evidence that demands a verdict. Um, having some way of, of putting God in a test tube and, you know. So, uh, Charles Taylor's thing on the cross pressures of, of faith like faith in a secular age, the you've always got those up upward drafts of transcendental. Mm-hmm. Like it's really hard for people who don't have a religious uh, heritage or a religious life. What do they do in the face of a great work of art? Or you know, when they stand at the edge of the Grand Canyon, there's the the up. But then there's for the rest of us who have faith, who have like a religious life than when what do you do it when you do the funeral of a yeah. baby or when you're um when you're looking at the Rwandan genocide or things like that. Um I think that's a pretty common story and then there's a lot of people in between who Oh, when I was in college I heard uh my Monty Cox, one of my professors in college, talked about something called anchoring that made me think of when y'all were talking made me think about this. Basically, the the woman who came up with the idea for the Home Shopping Network also predicted anchoring. What do you mean anchoring? Like that people would, in a, in a sea of uncertainty, would anchor and just, you know, like an ostrich head in the sand. And they would not deal with the complexities of yeah. kind of... So I, I was, I, I was talking with the... Uh, a pastor friend a couple of years ago, and uh, we were talking about uh, Wellhausen's new document hypothesis, which is the basic idea that the Pentateuch, which is the first five books of the Old Testament, which are called the books of Moses, and they're typically assumed to be written by Moses, even though there's a few places that like have information that... Speaking of a humble person wouldn't call himself humble. What? That's in the, yeah, in oh, the yeah, Torah. Yeah. If Moses wrote that, he would have called himself the most humble yeah. man who ever lived. Or so, I mean, if like you don't that. believe the Bible's inspired, you can say that, and you can criticize me. Or if you believe in the Bible, you wouldn't make fun of me. Um, but yeah, so Moses says he's humble, and there's like, 
So you just connect inerrancy and the tradition of Moses writing the Torah to believing in you. Like my humility, that's what I was saying. But, um, yeah, yeah. Both of those are <laughs> equally plausible. <laughs> <laughs> um, anyway, okay, so there's this theory that Moses didn't write it for a handful of different reasons and that there's like four different sources that compiled it, that, that were all compiled together to make it. And, Blah, 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 long, long story. And so I was talking with a friend of mine about that, and I said, he's a pastor, and he's gone to seminary, and so, like, this is a normal conversation for nerds like us. And I said, you know, well, what do you do with that theory? And he goes, you know, I just don't like it because it doesn't make that much of God. It makes, God doesn't seem like God's as big. And it's, and it's like, well, hmm. okay, what you're really saying is God doesn't live up to what you expect God to be. And so you're gonna just anchor down, put your head in the sand, and pretend like it didn't exist. And pretend like there's not some sort of uh, like critique of what you've held on to, and so just pretend like it doesn't exist. Is it like, and that's the option you're going to go with as being sustainable. I mean, you could disagree with that. I'm not saying that you're wrong if you disagree with it. I'm just saying, just to say that yeah. you don't like it because of how it makes your view of God deconstruct. That's a problem. Yeah, you know, one of the things Mike said that actually sent me off thinking about it because I really liked the way he said it was he said I learned the Bible itself has been on the kind of yeah. journey and uh, I one time I, a couple years ago I, I was visiting with a friend of mine who was a Christian and, and had deconverted to be an atheist and we were talking about the Bible and he was talking about the thing that made him stop believing in the in the Bible which was what everything was based on for him not Jesus it was the Bible was all the human bits of it. And I was like, I think that's like some of the most inspiring What do you mean parts. human bits? Well, I mean like the stuff where, well, what y'all talked about, what you and and Mike talked about somewhat, but also, you know, the the Velhausen hypothesis, it's just total nerd speak, I get that. Uh, but basically, you're drilling down into how, text criticism, how did this stuff come together? It was oral tradition and then, so like the um, contradictions and things about. that don't match modern expectations for literature, like that that kind of stuff. Right. Modern expectations is a huge part for it. But like in the day that it was written, you know, it's this huge stretch for the community, each mm-hmm. community uh, of faith. You know, the we think anti-immigration is a big thing now. Imagine <laughs> yeah. back then. You know what I mean? Like th- this was the only community in the world that is being told the way you – treat the immigrant is going to reflect what you really believe mm-hmm. about me and every, everywhere else it's tribalism yeah. and but uh, those yeah and but i too think that like the the humanity in the bible is the part that's most easy to connect to and it, it almost validates it more to me i i when i was in grad school i worked that's yeah, what i, I was and, saying and i agree like there was um I don't know if I've told the story or not, but I, there's a guy that I worked for when I was in grad school who was like sold antiques. And so one day, like, you know, I'm help. I, I was his personal trainer and then I did some other like stuff with installations for him t- uh, to make some extra money. And um, we we're looking at one piece of furniture and it, uh, it wasn't smooth edges. Like all the corners weren't perfect and didn't look like the, uh, the bookshelf that I got from target that cost like 29.99. And I, we were somehow talking about it and he was looking at the craftsmanship and he goes, you know, that right there is the humanity in it and that's what makes this piece cost thousands of dollars. Whereas the perfectly smooth and symmetrical and everything's uh, 
like super manufactured in, in the furniture I got from Target is what makes it so cheap because you can tell that it's not authentic. Like there's no humanity in the piece. And I think the yeah. Bible's humanity is where you find it. Like this really is something special because like inspiration, like incarnation says that inspiration is always the divine taken on human form. And that's what we see in scripture. Like this is the real testimony of people about the divine interacting with them. Yeah. So, oh, and then also Mike brought up Hillbilly Elegy. Oh, there you go. You love that, didn't you? Yo, I very much did. What? How many people have to recommend it before you think, you know what, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to look at this okay, book? Okay, there's someone in my office that said, hey, Luke, I know you like to, to, to read random books. Um, I started reading this book called uh, Hillbilly Elegy. I was like, okay, one more person. So I, I, I looked, I almost downloaded it, but I didn't. Huh, almost you're persuaded. Dude, it's a great book. And and the stuff Oh, oh listen, did you read that Atlantic article oh, I that I told read you it about? Yet, since you told me like four minutes ago. No, it was I listened to all these podcasts. I was for visiting you, someone who just had a baby and I just got back to my office. So I did not have a chance <laughs> You know what? I'm sure they would rather <laughs> you read the article. <laughs> That's probably true. They probably disinfect the That's newborn. True. Okay, so the America's Empty Church problem, he's basically talking about what Cope was talking about with um, uh, Hillbilly Elegy, because you got, you know, all these people who they're, you know, they believe in America and they, the Lord Jesus Christ, but uh, they don't go to church. And America's Empty Church problem is written in the Atlantic saying that, um, you know, it's addressing the 81% of white evan- evangelicals voted for Trump. And its big point is they weren't, for the most part, Trump did really well among evangelicals who didn't go to church. That people who, who uh, for the longest time, the story that we've told ourselves about um, in, in the secular America or secular secularizing West is that the more people um, disconnected from faith the more tolerant they would become. And they said what we found, and this is backed by all their social science, is that people didn't become um, more tolerant. They became less tolerant in different ways. So people um, who identify as Christian but don't go to church or people who used to be Christian but don't go to church, um, they are more likely to be anti-immigrant, anti-Muslim, um, anti-minority races, um, there, there are all these implications of what they had uh, of the, the of not living in a community of people who are different than you and decentering yourself and, and basically just absorbing the the mainstream political narrative as the narrative to make sense of your life. Yeah. So grievances are amplified. Us versus them identity stuff is always so you don't. For example. Um, outside of church, and this is a real question, I, I don't know the answer to it, but outside of church and maybe the place you work and which you get paid to be at, what other places in life do people have um, have to hang out with people in which they disagree with? That's a good question. I mean, your school system, maybe. Um, maybe. Yeah. In school, so when you're younger? No, I mean, just like you go to school with parents who you dis. Like your kids are at school with parents who you yeah. don't. But even that, I mean, that's not a 
substantial interaction. I mean, it, it, it matters, but you're not in, in each other's homes. You're not, no, I, I like, I'm, I'm agreeing. Like, I don't think most of our, most of the communities that we exist within are very homogenous and yeah, you're right. I, I saw a great tweet, uh, uh, by what is his name? Austin. Um, what is his last name? Uh, anyways, up in temple. And he said, uh, uh, what was it? I know You're I'm doing really, this. really good on the tweet. The, the point of the tweet was that what is a better uh, testimony is multi-ethnic churches. That's a more convincing proof than some sort of like pseudoscientific research. Like if you, oh, like w- totally. when you see the kingdom yeah. of heaven, which represents rich, poor, old, young, black, white, male, female, all like in community together, that's far more compelling than, you know, I found this, uh, this, this chalice and it must've been Joseph's from back in Egypt. You know, like I, I think that's a little bit, uh, less persuasive than seeing what the kingdom of heaven is supposed to be. So, yeah, one of the things that Atlantic article said was, um, it, it wasn't, it, this is not just a left or right problem. Like the, the left without church is basically, um, you know, black lives matters. was largely, they had written off. Uh, church is a viable, even though the civil rights movement, it was at the heart of it all. Yeah. Um, and then, and then on on the the right side, they talked about how um, it became Christianity was written becoming written off because it was too universal and it crossed racial yeah. boundary lines. I mean, and that that's like 2017. And part of me is. Uh, I appreciated that article for a lot of reasons, and I appreciate that people are, are waking up to the implications of Christianity, even if they're on yeah, the backside of it. That's good. Because that is, that is what Christian faith has always been. You know, Jew, there's no Jew or Gentile yeah. here, no slave or free. I, and I think one of the things that I loved about the conversation with, uh, with Ram John was the insight into how the dehumanizing language propelled people into... Uh, the atrocity of the genocide in Rwanda, where Ramjam's from, where he talked about mm. people would understand those from a different tribe as being snakes. And so you can kill a snake because that's not a big deal. Killing a person's terrible, but these people are really just snakes. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was a very fascinating insight because when we have our political divisions, often we find ourselves not calling each other snakes, but dehumanizing them and not seeing the value yeah. or the, the image of God in other people who disagree with us. And that is, that's our partisan politics right now, where it's, our, our main question is, do you agree with me on all these issues, and then we can have community? Yeah, that's true. There's a real group thinking. Did, did you ask Ram John off mic, or have y'all ever talked about how he feels about the current political climate in America? I, we've talked before about some of the, the rhetoric that uh, was going around the election time about refugees and how that had caused a great deal of panic and concern for uh, his friends. Uh, refugee. He's not a refugee in the United States, but his refugee friends in the States. Um, he had friends yeah. back home saying, all right, Ram John, I guess if Trump wins, you're going to have to come back home and we'll get it. I mean, there was, there was that sort of panic that, um, uh, you, know, Trump, you know, Trump and his candidacy created. Huh. I, I, I was wondering, you know, like when people like you or me talk about, you know, 
this is very concerning, the language that we're seeing from otherwise sane people talking about people on the other side of the political aisle who used to not be so invested in politics. When we talk about that or we bring up, you know, the Rwandan genocide or, you know, we we can be accused of alarmism, even though I do think there's quite a bit to be armed with, you know, the the Hitler thing. You can't use the metaphor for Hitler, even though that is like a legit concern for every country. But but when Um, I hear the Hitler stuff, I think, oh, that's so outlandish. I mean, that's that's just too dramatic of a metaphor because I don't think that really could happen to us. And there's a sense of, like, arrogance to go, oh, wait a minute, Ramjan, that happened where he's from. And right, like, w- right. what is it? Like, we're more civilized, we're better people, we're, like, what is the arrogance that causes me to think that that I'm different from from that country? And, yeah. Yeah, I think that's the right question to ask. That's why I liked him being on because I th- I think he's this is very recent and Rwanda's you know fairly yeah. modern country. He, I I think he's okay with me saying this. If not, my bad, Ram John. Um, but he, he said afterwards. He said I forgot to say this, but his mom takes care of uh, five kids who were the product of rape that happened during the the war. And so they're still growing, like the, the product of this genocide um, are still kids. You know what I'm saying? Like, I, and they live at mm-hmm. his mom takes care of these, these five kids and they call him, uh, what is it? They call him like uncle Ram John or something. Uh, so that's how recent it is. It's not like this is some distant thing. I mean, this is still, yeah. Um, I mean, we were teenagers yeah. when it happened. Do you remember when it was Not going really. on? I, I have a insight afterwards, but I don't. I don't really remember much about it. Do you? Yeah. Um, well, you know, Clinton was president, and we were in Arkansas, and I think it was early on in his presidency, so we were paying yeah. a lot of attention to. Hey, yeah. he's one of us. When, when I got uh-huh. to ACU, there was, a, there was a, so I was a walk on on the track team, and it was. a uh, there was a guy on the track team named Gilbert who, uh, so he was a distance runner and distance runners always like wear like super short shorts and not a whole lot of it on top. And so there's a lot of skin showing and Gilbert's body was like 80% burnt because he was in one of the war torn countries and his school got locked up and they set it on fire and he broke out of a window and ran even though the majority of his body was burnt. So, Anyway, that was my first up close and personal experience of going. Oh, there's there's the skin of a guy who's literally been burnt all over, and he's running around the track and he was all American national champion. Um, but uh, that that was the first time it was up close and personal and real to me. Yeah, I, I love. I I think Rob John deserves a, a better preacher. Every time I've heard him on your podcast, I've been very impressed with. He seems like a just a great, joyful guy to be around. I loved him trying to get. I, you to I sing. would, but I just I didn't want to make it about me. And uh, okay, I would what about now. Yeah. Okay. Now? So uh, there's uh, he is one of the, like the leaders in our international class, and so they uh, he led like a Swahili song. I think it was like three or four weeks ago. Uh, during a service, because we actually had one ser- service entirely dedicated to uh, our refugee friends at our church and what they've gone through. 
and everyone absolutely loved it so much. And so we're going to have Ram John lead another song in Swahili this Sunday. And like, I don't know about like your worship leader, but like ours don't really do a whole lot of dancing typically. But uh, when Ram John <laughs> leads, like, and he, like, he has got some people singing with him, like they, they, they like, they like do dance and all that. And no one has a problem with it. Everyone loves him dancing. But I feel like if I start doing that, I don't think I'd get the same response for some reason. You know, only one That's way good, to find out. There's like a, only one way to find a out. Facebook don't poll? Is that yeah. what you're thinking? <laughs> all right. Yeah, you can take that. If you will, if you will honor the results of the yeah. Facebook poll, I don't know how to do it, so do I just won't do the poll. Okay, I want to hear the next month's guest, but first, I have I have an idea for a oh, couple oh of guests goodness. that you should have on your uncle or something. Yeah, you do not want to have my <laughs> uncle's on. Oh my goodness, <laughs> that would be wild. Oh, uh, to them, I'm a <laughs> city guy, right? So, and and they are sincere about that. So I think you should have Rod Dreer, the guy who wrote uh, the Benedict Option, on with Richard Beck. Okay. I would look because uh, Beck has written a progressive version of the Benedict hmm. Option, but that's a huge book and it's really polarizing right now. Um, in Christian circles, at least, because it, it seems at the heart of the evangelical versus mm. Anabaptist debate, and also there's conservative versus progressive stuff in there. But then you've got someone like Beck who is calling for people to literally withdraw from the world with the Anabaptist mm. impulse, but to do it in progressive ways. Like you don't have to. Um, I, anyway, I'd love to hear that. That mm. um, the New York Times has done several articles, op-eds. And column stuff responding hmm. to the Benedict option. Okay, um, it, it's a David Brooks said it was even though he disagreed with the premise, he said it was the most important religious book of the decade. Even more so than so, How to Start a Riot. <laughs> well, you know I've, I have yeah. questions, Brooks. Okay, I'll, I'll look into <laughs> Old Rod. And then also Michael Ware Michael reclaiming Ware. hope. Recla- okay. He he was an Obama staffer, and he he's just one of those people that I've been impressed with from Reclaiming afar. Hope. All right, um, all right. So okay, now that I've given my great ideas, I assume that's the first yeah. two weeks of April. What, what no, comes next? the first one uh, recorded a couple weeks ago with um, a guy named Jason. Um, okay, the worst possible thing that could happen to you is what. John, I mean, dead serious. Like, if you think like the worst thing to happen to you would be what? Uh, yeah, all yeah. my family um, dies. So he had a three-year-old son who uh, they come home from church. The go his son takes a nap. Uh, he lays down, and his wife and his daughters are up at church for a VBS. And somehow his son uh, wakes up and goes outside. They live south of San Antonio in Texas. Uh, summertime, they get in the car. He gets in the car. Dad's asleep, and um, uh, son suffocates, passes away as a three-year-old. And so Jason wrote a book about trying to find faith after that. He's not a theologian. Um, once A&M has a degree like in finance or something like that. And uh, it's him trying to process faith after that tragedy. It's um, um, pretty... Uh, 
Uh, it's a conversation you definitely need to hear. It's not going to be a fun one, but it's one you need to hear. Uh, that'll be the next one. And um, we've got a couple more that I'm working on that uh, don't have them in the, in the can yet. But we've got, we'll do, I think, I guess three more after that. And then we'll have uh, a bunch of live ones we'll probably do out in Malibu next month. Yeah, cool. you are. Cool. Looking forward to it. Yeah, you are. I don't know why I did that for him. That was kind of weird. Uh, but uh, <laughs> it be. I look forward to this kind of amazing interaction. Live. Are you, you need to come? To, are you going to come to him? No. Come to the live podcast nine o'clock at night. When in, is it? Uh, one of the theaters. I forget or the chapel. Stouffer. You, yeah, you I'll, need to be I'll there. probably I, be there, man. It'll be me and like you know your family. I'm assuming, and then whoever you've hmm. hogtied into. Yeah, that's weird because last year you came to mind. I don't know even know if you were able to get a seat. Um, but uh, hopefully this time. <laughs> there, was, there were only you four needed. seats. Low expectations. Under promise, over deliver. You only had seats for the people on All the All right, podcast. Jonathan. Pleasure as always. Are you going to talk about resurrection anytime soon at yeah. church? You can do anything special for Easter? Yeah, well, I'm going to wait till Easter okay. to talk like, about resurrection. Do you have like a, but, yeah, a potato that you're going to set on fire? Or like... Uh, so, <laughs> Hold on, let me write that down. <laughs> do, you, do you have like a prop or you something? You're gonna, like, do you have, like, oh, I knew it. I do, yeah. The resurrection isn't enough. You have to have sh- charades. Oh, what is God. it? Can we hear it? Uh, when does this come It'll out? It'll be out. Oh, uh, we can. It's a door. I'll just tell you that. It's a, it's a, a, a door, door, a freestanding well, door. I adore that idea. I can't wait to hear how it goes. And uh, oh, all right, friends, thanks for listening. We're done. Thanks for checking out Newsworthy with Norsworthy. Make sure to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. You are now adjourned. <laughs>